Good morning. Happy to see you all here today. Um, just a, a quick thing regarding our trip to Peru. If you have even the slightest inclination or desire, speaking to the youth and young adults, uh, to come, then please come to the information session. And parents as well of those people, please try to be there um, as well if somehow the Lord is moving on your heart and you have even the slightest thought to come. Looking forward to seeing you all tonight as well for our praise and prayer night, time of worship, time of prayer as well, uh, to intercede and pray for salvation, pray for evangelism, um, pray for various needs. I want to start, uh, as you know, we're going through the, the book of Esther. I hope you still have your handout from last week, and so we're in part two today, the title Mordecai versus Haman, dealing with chapter three. I want to read for you uh, a little um, excerpt from an article from uh, Open Doors, which is an organization that helps the persecuted church in various countries. In a communist country, a Christian girl named Vyarika was beaten harshly in school because she had invited her schoolmates to church. She fainted during the beating, and an ambulance had taken her to hospital. Two days passed before she regained consciousness. When she did, the doctor at her bedside said, You poor girl, at last you've opened your eyes. All this time I've been thinking of the cruelty of the director who beats you like this. My heart has been bitter with hatred. I wish I could take revenge on him. She smiled. There is no need to hate him, she replied. Jesus taught us to love everyone. Just before I opened my eyes, I saw him and talked to him. He asked me whether it still hurts, and he told me that in heaven I will receive a very beautiful crown, which is reserved only for those who have suffered for him. He told me to pray for those who mistreated me and to love them because our influence will help them to give their lives to God and so become his children. Such an amazing response, right, to such suffering and persecution. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to your house this morning. And Lord, as we look into your word, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would enlighten our, the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, most of all, that we would leave here to be doers of your word, Lord. And we would leave here encouraged in you. And so we surrender this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the first two chapters um, of the book of Esther. And um, which was sort of just setting up what was going to take place in the rest of the, uh, the book. And we're going to leave Esther alone for today um, because chapter 3 doesn't talk too much about her. We'll get back to her uh, next week. But we were introduced as well to a person by the name of Mordecai who was Esther's older cousin, okay, and the one person that took care of Esther while she was, after she became an orphan. In chapter 3, now again, I'm presuming and hoping that you've done your homework and read chapter 3 before coming today. I hope so, okay? So, but I'll give a little bit of a summary here and there, but if not, you can go home and read chapter 3 again as well. So the antagonist in the story here is introduced in chapter 3, and his name is Haman. And uh, he's a person who is against Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow down to him, given Haman's position in the government. Right? And then Haman ends up coming after the whole Jewish people. So last week we ended in chapter 2 and verse 18. And so I just want to uh, resume there in chapter 2 and from verse 19. And so I just split this, uh, the message up into four main things. And the first one 
uh, starting from chapter 2 and verse 19, is understanding that when good deeds go unrecognized, and this is what happens in this ending of chapter 2, good deeds that go on unrecognized. So from chapter 2, verse 19, till the end of that chapter, verse 23, we read about a conspiracy. Okay, now I told you at the beginning, there's some action, right? There's some conspiracy. There's a battle between good and evil, which we're going to see today, right? And so there's a conspiracy that Mordecai actually uncovers, and he tells the queen, Queen Esther, in order to save the king. And so the conspiracy was that Mordecai was at the king's gate, and he hears, hears about a plot from two men, um, in order to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai reports it to Esther, and Esther in turn reports it to the king and gives credit to Mordecai, saying Mordecai is the person that actually discovered this. Mordecai is the person that reported it. The credit should go to Mordecai because during those days, if you reported something like that, if you did something like that, then you would be honored, you would be praised, you would you know, receive a reward uh, for something, for, for doing that. And so they investigate, they find it out to be true, and what happens is they write this account in one of their books, and that's the end of that part of the story. Mordecai is not honored. Mordecai is not given a reward. He's sort of just left there. Nothing else happens, and that's the end of that story. Uh, he may have accept, uh, expected some sort of reward or honor because that was something that maybe uh, would happen during those days. But it's interesting, as we come to the end of chapter 2, and we come to the beginning of chapter 3, we see the juxtaposition of how chapter 2 ends and how chapter 3 begins. Chapter 2 ends with this thing that Mordecai does, this thing that he should be rewarded for, but he's not. It's just written there. And chapter 3 begins with somebody else being praised and honored. Esther chapter 3 and verse 1 says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all that of the other nobles. Now, it's interesting because this verse starts off by saying, after these events, right? Now, we have to understand that, you know, these things were written in a scroll. There wasn't chapter and verse numbers like we have now that helps us to easily reference this. This was just written straight through. And so, after these events, speak about these events of just what Mordecai just did. So the author uses this literary technique to contrast what Mordecai just did, which he should have been honored for, but he gets no honor. And right after that, it says, after these events, then who gets honored? Haman. And so we're trying to see in this chapter the contrast and the fight, if I could say, between Haman and Mordecai. And we'll see how, what these things speak of for our lives today. Right? But it's interesting how chapter 3 starts off uh, like this. And maybe in our lives, we go through things like this too. Maybe we do things at work, we do things at school, we do things in our family, and maybe no one notices. Maybe no one says anything. No one says, oh, well done. We don't get a pat on the back that says, good job. And maybe we just continue to do things that go unnoticed. But we should realize that everything that we do, if we do it as unto the Lord there's a reward that God has for us. We might not receive it now in this world, maybe in the world to come, right? Maybe, uh, maybe in, our, in our lives we're doing things and, and our boss doesn't see that. He doesn't acknowledge it. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't reward us for that. We don't get the raise we wanted. Maybe there's other people that they're cheating and they're doing other things and they're cutting corners and, and they get honored. Maybe we're like Mordecai, we do something good, nothing happens to us, but then this Haman guy comes along 
and he gets honored and exalted, and we're scratching our heads wondering, well, what about all the good that I've done? How come I don't get any acknowledgement in this? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10 says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. The beautiful part of this story is that later on, we will come to see this small little uh, part of the story at the end of chapter 2 actually becomes something so significant that it helps uh, Mordecai out to, to the point of it even saves his life. And if he would have gotten the reward here in chapter 3, then we don't know what would have happened later on. But because it was overlooked here in chapter 3, later on in the story, it comes back, and at the perfect time, Mordecai is honored. And it's so wonderful to see how God sovereignly works in our life, how God providentially works in our life. And maybe we might not receive what we want to receive right now. Maybe we're not acknowledged the way that we want to be acknowledged. The human nature is like that. Maybe we don't get everything that we want to get right now. But let me say, dear friends, God is working in our lives. God's hand is in our lives. And at the right time, when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. So the lesson here is God allows experiences in our lives, which may seem unfair, may seem unjust, but he's able to use those things for a greater purpose, which we might not see right now. Now, the other thing, the second thing that we see in this, in this chapter is the, the battle between good and evil. We see this contrast going on. It's a battle. It's a conflict that we see in chapter 3. It's between Mordecai and Haman. It's between the Jew and the Gentile. It's between God's chosen people and the enemy. It's between good and evil, right? Now, if you notice the lineage of Haman here, it says that Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. What the author actually of this book is doing, he's introducing the enmity that's actually there between the Jews and the Agagites, which is mirrored and portrayed in the relationship between Mordecai and Haman. So stay with me here, okay? There's this relationship here between the Jews and the Agagites that's portrayed between Mordecai and Haman, but it's also mirrored in in the spiritual battle that takes place in our lives today. It's a spiritual battle that we are having as well. It's something that's, very, uh, that's, that's historical in the story, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But the readers at that time, when they read this, they would connect it right away to the aggression, to the conflict, to the problems, to the trials, to the disdain that, that existed in this historical relationship between Mordecai and Haman or between the Jews and the Agagites. Now, if you go back all the way to Exodus chapter 17 you'll find the first occurrence of the people known as the Amalekites. Later on, when Saul, who was a king of Israel, became king, he was given a commandment to destroy all of the Amalekites. And do you know what the name of the king of the Amalekites were? was? Agag. He was the king of the Amalekites. And Saul was given a strict commandment, destroy all the Amalekites, kill off the king, everything that they have, everything has to be destroyed. Now, there is a, a rabbinic tradition that Haman actually descended from Agag, right? But there's no way of knowing for sure. What we do know is that the author wants to highlight this relationship, that there is a conflict, that there is some sort of tension there between 
the Jews and the Agagites, between Haman and Mordecai. So this term Agagite was actually something that was used to characterize Haman as somebody who was anti-Semitic, okay? And it continues to be a problem even till today. Esther chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So here the author clearly states he is the enemy of the Jews. It started way back in Israel's past when they were fleeing Egypt and when they were on their journey towards the promised land, right? The first nation that came against them was the Amalekites. They came to to attack Israel. Now, as I said, when Saul became king, Samuel gave him a strict instruction. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verses 1 to 3, it says, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Remember, that's what I referenced. And we'll look back at that later on near the end of the message in Exodus chapter 17. We'll come back to that. But so Samuel is referring to this again. You know, the Amalekites, when Israel was leaving Egypt, the Amalekites came and they were attacking Israel. I remember that. I haven't forgotten about that. So Saul, you go out now. You're king over Israel. You're the first king of Israel. So Saul, go out and destroy the Amalekites, right? I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Sadly, King Saul did not do this. He didn't fully obey the commandment of the Lord, and he spared the king, Agag, right? And then from then on, we see that any enemies that Israel had, some of them were characterized as Agagites. For example, first first century Jewish writers sometimes referred to the Roman people, because at that time, the Roman people were oppressing Israel. They referred to them sometimes as Agagites, Okay, again, they weren't directly descended from Agag or from the Amalekites, but because of this relationship, because of this tension between the Jewish people and the Agagites, between the Jewish people and the Amalekites, this tension that that was there. And it's the same thing that's in our lives as well, that there's a spiritual battle that we are facing. There's a spiritual battle that we all are in. We have to realize as, we read, as, uh, as Keisha read those verses, the scripture reading, our battle is not against flesh and blood, not like they were facing against attacking an actual people. But there is a spiritual battle that we all are living in. And the enemy is out to get us. And that's why we need to cry unto the Lord. It's interesting, it says uh, uh, about uh, King Saul, because he didn't do this, Samuel came again to Saul and said, because you didn't do this, God has rejected you from being king. This was the moment that Saul lost his kingship and God said, God has rejected you from being king. And we see that failure to obey the commandments of the Lord has consequences. Samuel told Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. And you see in the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is when David is actually anointed to eventually become king. And it's interesting because what happens? Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, goes and calls for Agag. He says, bring Agag here to me. And he kills him because Saul wasn't able to do it. Again, we're, we're, we're not looking at a, at a physical battle that we're facing here, but something spiritual. The enemy of God is against us. He's out to destroy us, to ruin us, 
to discourage us, to condemn us, to tempt us, to take us away from all that God has for us. So we must be like Samuel and not like Saul. Now it becomes even more interesting when we see the lineage of Mordecai. Mordecai was actually from the tribe of Benjamin, same tribe that King Saul was from. And if you look back in Esther chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. And Kish was actually the father of Saul, right? Again, not, they're not connecting a direct descent here, but they're just saying from these families here. So we don't know exactly how Saul was uh, connected to, um, to, uh, to Mordecai. But again, the writer here is linking us and, and pointing, giving us clues here to point us towards this connection of this historical problem that's going on between Mordecai and Haman. It's not just them, but there's a larger picture here. It's not just Mordecai and it's not just Haman. There's a larger battle that has started way before and has been continuing and still continues even till this day. We as the people of God, we have an enemy of our soul that's waiting to attack us, waiting to discourage us, waiting to destroy us, waiting to take us out of the house of God, waiting to take us out of the presence of God, waiting to take us away from the things of God. And we have to be aware that there's this battle that's going on to see the struggle. And so um, we see this battle that started even at the very beginning of the Bible. And we see it in the Exodus when they were coming out of Egypt. We see it in the reign of Saul. And now in this chapter, we see it between Mordecai and Haman as a possible holocaust of the Jewish people in 5th century Persia. How Haman just wanted to wipe out all of the Jews. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember when the devil was tempting uh, Adam and Eve to eat of the tree, uh, to eat that fruit, what did he say? After they, they fell, after they disobeyed, when God came to speak with them, he said, I will put enmity between you, speaking of Satan, the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He will strike your heel speaks of the attacks of the enemy against us and the attack that, that, that the enemy was trying, would bring towards God's chosen Christ, Jesus. But then it says he will crush your head, which speaks of the victory that Jesus has over Satan. Speaks of the victory that Christ has over the devil. So dear friends, we don't have to worry. We don't have to say, oh, there's a battle that's going on. I don't know what to do. Christ has already given us the victory. Christ has already won the battle. Some people consider this verse, uh, Genesis 3 verse 15, as the, as the first messianic verse in the Bible or as the first prophetic verse about Christ in the Bible, the, the prediction that Christ would come and crush the enemy. And so this battle between good and evil has been occurring from the, from the book of Genesis all the, way, all the way through, even till present day. We read these verses in, 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 in 2 Corinthians, actually. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Right? And how the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal things, but they are, uh, we don't battle against flesh and blood. But the weapons that we use, they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. There's an attack that's going on. There's an enemy that's coming against us. We have to realize that we are in a spiritual battle. I would be remiss to mention, if I didn't mention today, in, in the United States, it's known as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, where they celebrate the sanctity of life of the unborn children in the womb. 
And uh, I think maybe in some areas in Canada celebrate, I'm not too sure. But it's a day that people champion human rights, the rights of that unborn baby. Sadly, even in, in Canada in this year, in, last year in 2017, I was reading some stats that there was about 100,000 abortions in Canada. So many of those children who lost their lives. Next Sunday, January 28th, 2018, will be the 30th anniversary of the Supreme Court case here in Canada of R versus uh, Morting Toller, which was the Supreme Court case that basically made abortion legal in Canada 30 years ago from next Sunday. And so we have to understand that in so many things that happen in our life, it, it might not be a flesh and blood battle where we're pulling out the sword like, like Samuel or Saul and, you know, trying to attack people. No, there's a battle that's going on in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual battle that we're facing. And God is calling his people to rise up and pray. Christ has won the victory. We can take confidence in that. We can trust in that. But we have to realize as well that we are in, in a battle, right? Number three. The furious anger of Haman. Now, Haman here, he just goes totally overboard. In chapter 3, we read about how the people had to bow down to Haman because of the position that he had, right? And because the king commanded it. Now, Mordecai uh, did not want to bow down to, to Haman. And we're not sure exactly of the reason why. Some of the officials we read in verse 3, they asked Mordecai, why are you not bowing down? But he doesn't give an answer. You can make a case maybe for there's a religious connection and Mordecai maybe didn't want to bow down because of religious reasons. But more than likely, it wasn't uh, because of that because sometimes people would bow down just as a sign of respect. So maybe Mordecai didn't want to respect Haman. Uh, and maybe that's why. Maybe he thought, oh, I should have gotten that a promotion or an honor. Why did Haman get that? In any case, the plot is thickening here between the people of God and the enemies of God. When Haman gets frustrated and he gets upset and he wants to kill not just Mordecai, but he wants to kill all the Jewish people. So he goes to the king and the king basically gives him a blank check and says, do whatever you want to do. And so Haman makes this decree, which is absolutely astonishing. And the decree is kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is just amazing. Haman just takes this totally to the next level. It's ironic that the command goes out on the 13th day of the first month, and basically they're given 11 days in order to prepare. Can anyone tell me what the significance, or do you know what the significance is of the 13th day of the first month? It's the day before the Passover. And can you imagine if you live there in the palace area, if you live there in the kingdom, and you're celebrating the Passover the next day, Right on the 14th day, and you're celebrating the Passover, and at that time, and you hear this command that's going out, and you see you're celebrating your deliverance from Egypt. Your ancestors were delivered from Egypt and brought into the promised land. And now you hear this command, this edict that goes out, that all the Jews are going to be annihilated. They're going to be killed. What would you do in that situation? Sometimes we face situations like that. We can remember God's goodness and how he delivered us. We can remember the hand of God and his provision for our lives. But we're facing this big trial right in front of us. And we think, God, what are you going to do in this situation? How are you going to save me from this thing? Yes, Lord, I do remember what you did in the past. But Lord, this situation is really tough. This situation is really difficult. 
How am I going to escape out of this situation? It's a really hard situation. What would we do in that situation? Would we be fearful? Would we be worried? Cry? Lose hope? Or trust in God? Maybe today you're facing a situation like that. Maybe you can lift up your hands and praise God and say, Lord, I thank you for the deliverance you've given me before. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life before. But Lord, I'm facing this huge trial in front of me and I don't know how to go forward. I'm facing this huge problem in front of me and I don't know where to go. I want to encourage you today. Trust in God. Trust in God who sovereignly works in our lives. And the little things that we might not notice are things that he's doing and using to bring about his purpose in our lives. How can you explain Haman's wrath here? Just for one person not bowing down to him, he wants to start a genocide. This is an unbelievable escalation on Haman's part. His wrath is so fierce, it's, it's, it's tremendous, his wrath. But we have to realize this is how the enemy reacts. This is how the enemy is against us. And he's been working like this in order to kill Christ, to kill the Lord's people. Now, if you go all the way back, if you go back to the the book of Genesis, and if you go to the life of Abraham, how God promised to Abraham that from his children, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was a promise of Christ, that Christ would come, the Savior, the Messiah would come from Abraham, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that promise was passed down to Isaac, that promise was passed down to Jacob and his sons, and the devil didn't like that. The enemy didn't like that. And so he was trying to do whatever he could to prevent Christ from being born. We can see that back in Egypt when Pharaoh gave the commandment to kill all the Jewish male children. He was trying to stop this promise of God from being fulfilled. He was trying to stop this promise of God to Abraham that from your children, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. We can see it when Jesus was born and when Herod wanted to kill all of the children that were two years and under in order to try to eliminate Christ. We see the enemy working in so many different ways. Again, this is a spiritual battle that we are in. We see it when Haman's wrath is expressed in order to try to destroy all the Jewish people and just commit genocide and just stop the whole Jewish nation so that way none of the promises of God towards Abraham would be fulfilled. Can you see the struggle between good and evil? It's not just limited to Mordecai and Haman. This is a much larger thing that started way back in Genesis. And we see it at different times throughout the history of Israel. And it's even till now towards us, God's chosen people. We are the true Jews if we accept Christ into our life. But none of that worked. And so when Jesus was there, what were they trying to do? They were plotting and they were thinking, okay, we weren't successful all those other times, but now we got Jesus. We got him against the ropes. He's in the corner. We're going to kill him. We're going to have the victory. The devils and demons are celebrating. Yes, we got Christ. He's on the cross. He's dying. And who gets the last laugh? The Lord. Because in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 it says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. Speaking at that time, they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand that Jesus had to die. They thought, yeah, we got, we got Christ now. We weren't able to kill all those children before. We weren't able to commit genocide before. But now we got Christ. But here he says, Paul says, none of the rulers of the age, they didn't understand all of what was going on. Because if they knew 
what actually was happening. If they knew that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would be the salvation of all mankind, if they knew that what Jesus was actually doing bought redemption for you and for me, it says they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And the tables were turned. I love this story. This is just such an amazing story about how God just works sovereignly and mightily. And it's so amazing because it just mirrors what happens in the book of Esther. I'll give you a little foreshadowing here. I don't know if you've read ahead. But here, what they thought was going to end the story of Christ by crucifying ended up being the story of redemption, where now we exalt the cross of Christ. And in the story of Esther, the same way that Haman thought he was going to use to kill out all the Jews, turned around against them so that the Jews now could defend themselves. The very way they thought that they were going to annihilate the Jews became the way that the Jews would be saved. Might not make sense right now. We'll get to that in a couple of chapters. But that's the same thing that happened to Jesus. They thought, oh, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Let's have a party. We got him finally. It didn't work the times before. It didn't work in Egypt. It didn't work with Pharaoh. It didn't work with Herod. But now we got him. Ha ha. Devil, you lost. Dear people of God, dear friends, we have the victory in Jesus. That is something to celebrate, celebrate of. We have the victory in Jesus. The enemy has to run away. Number four, the last thing. Believers in Christ are the true Israelites. In this story that we see, Mordecai versus Haman, the Jewish people versus the enemies of God, we see this, that we, as true believers in Christ, are the true Israelites. If you're here today and, and maybe some of this is strange to you or new to you and you don't have never experienced Christ as your Savior, I just want to invite you after the service today, there will be people here at the front to pray. And if you want to just take that step to, to commit your life to Christ, to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And then you can be like this, true Israelite. Romans 2 verse 29 says, a person is a Jew, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. It's not outwardly that you're born to that. Yes, literally there are, there are Jews that are born as Jews outwardly. But here in a spiritual sense, the Lord says that there are Jews who are Jews in their, in their heart. Right? First Peter 2 verse 9 and 10 says, speaking of us, the true people of God. We are a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. A holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now, what are you? The people of God. The people of God. It's so great to be called the people of God. Why? Because we are on the victor's side. We are on the victor's side. The enemy is coming against us. John 10 and verse 10 says the thief comes. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We must be aware of this spiritual battle that we're in today. Started all the way back in the garden. And we can see it at different times through the story of the Old Testament. Different times in the New Testament. And now today, even in 2018, there's this battle that's going on but we are on the victor's side. But the apostle encourages us, Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12, put on the armor of God, that you can stand against the devil's schemes. 
Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Paul here clearly says, we're not struggling against flesh and blood. You don't have to break out the sword to try to kill everybody. No. But there is a battle going on. There is a struggle that's going on. And the victory is ours because of Jesus. Now, going back to the context of the Jews at that time, they might have asked the question, because realize what happened there. The Jewish people at that time, it was this Jewish diaspora that was there, and they were all in different places, right? Because they were taken out of the promised land, because they had disobeyed God. They had disobeyed God. They had hardened their heart. They had worshipped idols, done all of these different things. And now they were scattered all abroad. And now there was this big attack against the Jewish people, this possible holocaust, this genocide that could have happened. And maybe they're asking themselves, God, will you still deliver me even though we failed? Will you still protect your people even though we've sinned? Lord, we've worshipped idols. We've hardened our heart towards you. We've forgotten your goodness. We haven't kept your commandments in the promised land, and now you've scattered us abroad. And now with this attack coming against us, Lord, will you still deliver us? We don't see the answer in this chapter, but I'm going to sneak ahead a few chapters and tell you that the answer is an over-astounding yes, yes, yes. God is faithful to his people. Regardless of what happened, they've sinned, they've fallen. They've hardened their heart towards God. They're scattered abroad. But still, the God of Israel is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. He wanted to see the promise, the word that he gave to Abraham fulfilled. Come what may, God will complete his word. Come what may, he will fulfill his promises in our lives. Dear friends, we can take such comfort in that. That regardless of what situation we find ourselves in, regardless of however we failed and hurt God and and, and hardened our heart against God, regardless of whatever idols we've set up, regardless of how far we might feel from the presence of God, I want to tell you that God is faithful. His word is true. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57 says, But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the key to understand this whole chapter 3 is actually not found in chapter 3, but found in a couple chapters later in chapter 6 and verse 13. So I just want to go there for a moment. Chapter 6 and verse 13. Once... Mordecai, once Haman starts to fall, once Haman starts to lose some of these things that's happening, Haman's wife actually says this to Haman. And she says to Haman, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, remember in chapter 3, Mordecai is high and lifted up and he's doing all these sort of things and he's ready for an all-on onslaught against the Jewish people. But as we progress in this story, we'll see how Haman starts to fall. But here his wife says, before whom your downfall has started, because Mordecai is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. Because we are the true Israelites. Because we are the people of God. 
Because we have the promises of God. Because Christ died for us and bought for us the victory on Calvary. We are of Jewish origin and no enemy can stand against us. We have the victory. No enemy can stand against us. He says here, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Isn't that encouraging? You see this battle between good and evil all the way from the garden. Seen throughout the exodus in e- of Egypt. Seen when the, they fight the Amalekites. And then now seen in this book of Esther. And one thing we take consolation is that here it says, since Mordecai is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. This is our hope. The enemy can bring whatever he wants against us. The enemy can try to do whatever he wants, but we are victorious. Why? Because Jesus is victorious. We are God's people And he'll bring us into that city. He'll bring us into that heavenly place and he will make us prosper. In in closing, I just want to go back to Exodus chapter chapter 17. And in this chapter, we see the first fight. The the very first nation that came against Israel was the Amalekites. After they crossed the Red Sea and now they're on their journey, the first nation that comes against them is the Amalekites. And Moses tells Joshua as the general... Go out and fight against the Amalekites. And so, and Moses said, I'm going to take my staff and I'm going to stand on a hill, right? And Moses said, I'm going to lift up my hands. And the Bible says, as long as Moses had his hands lifted up, they were having the victory. The Amalekites were losing. But then Moses got a little tired and he started to drop his hands. And so God sent two people, Aaron and Hur. They came along and they started to hold up Moses' hands. And as long as Moses had his hands lifted up, as long as he had the staff lifted up, they were winning. And they finally won the battle. And there's so many things that you can learn from this story. But if there's just one thing I want, to, want us to take away from this story, is that the battle, the spiritual struggle, is not meant to be fought alone. And God sends people to encourage you. God sends people to strengthen you. God sends people to support you. And it's one of the reasons why we have life groups as well, so that we can journey in this life, in this spiritual struggle, in this spiritual battle together. So when one person is disheartened, they can be encouraged by another person. When that person is disheartened, they could also be encouraged. And there's such a beautiful thing that when we go through burdens and when we go through problems, God helps us and God encourages us. God holds up our hands so that the victory can be won. And this verse, Exodus 17 Verse 14 and 15 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And here it says that Moses built an altar and called it the Lord my banner. The name of God there is Jehovah Nissi. The Lord my victory. The Lord my banner. God was victorious in that. Dear people of God, dear friends, God is victorious. We are victorious because we are on His side. If you're not on His side today, I just want to encourage you, get on the winning side. You don't want to be on the losing side. Because Jesus is victorious. We can be encouraged in Him. We're going to sing this song. The singers can come. This we know. I love the words to this song because part of it says, Our hope is in you alone. Our strength is in your mighty name. Our peace in the darkest day remains. 
sees us. Our God through the wilderness and our joy in the heaviness. Our peace in the darkest day remains, Jesus. Our, this we know, we will see, I love this line, this we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you ever made because Jesus, you are unfailing. Isn't that amazing? This we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you ever made. Jesus, you are unfailing. Let's sing.